This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Canada is still buzzing about the performances of Eugenie Bouchard and Milos Raonic at Wimbledon. Both made history going further than any other Canadian players. Kelly Mermetz is the president and CEO of Tennis Canada, and she believes we're entering the golden age of Canadian tennis. We'll have that coming up. Just Plus, most of us probably aren't looking forward to heading back to work tomorrow. But for some people, the office has become an escape from a stressful home life. That's especially true for caregivers. Today, Dr. Allison Williams will tell us what Canadian employers should be doing about that. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. You might not consider yourself an artistic person, but that shouldn't stop you from picking up a paintbrush or enrolling in drawing classes. New research from Germany has found that painting or drawing improves effective interaction between certain parts of the brain. The study followed a group of recent retirees who took up art classes and another who attended art appreciation classes. The group that created art reported strengthened psychological resilience. MRIs also showed improvements in the part of the brain that governs cognitive processes such as introspection, self-monitoring, and memory. The study is published in the online journal Plus One. A traditional battle of the generations is being reversed in China. Young people are getting upset because their elders are playing their music way too loud. It's all because of the dancing grannies. Every evening at dusk, groups of mostly older women gather in public parks to dance together. They call the choreographed routines Guangchang Wu, square dancing, and they do it as a way to keep fit and happy. But many young people living in apartment buildings around the public squares complain the music is too loud and the grannies dance too late into the evening. It's estimated 100 million dancing grannies get together every night around China, and the number is expected to increase dramatically as the population ages. They say an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but maybe you should chase that apple with a drink. Previous studies have suggested that wine holds health benefits, but new research says any kind of alcohol can be good in the right amount. Swedish researchers writing in the journal Circulation conclude that alcohol, when consumed on a regular basis and at low volumes, can offer protection for the heart. Low volumes would be up to one drink for women and two drinks for men daily. But they also caution there's no way to know if there's a safe threshold for drinking. And finally, we're all used to the kind of glowing obituaries that glorify the deceased. 
but a much more honest, unvarnished appreciation of a B.C. man went viral this week. George Ferguson's daughter, Karen Shirley, wrote, What to say about George? Certainly, no one could accuse him of having been a loving son, brother, or father. He'd gladly have stolen the shirt off your back, and he was generous to a fault with other people's money. The obit allowed that the former United Church minister was probably a con man, but it also emphasized that he was the most exciting member of his family. Karen Shirley even went as far as to suggest the timing of her dad's death was his final con. Quote, the next day, we found out that he'd been racking up ominous bank and credit card debts. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. What's more stressful, your work or life at home? Many of us would say work, but research has shown that our stress levels are often higher at home. And that's especially true for people who have added responsibilities as caregivers. Dr. Allison Williams has been researching caregiver-friendly workplaces, and I reached her at her work office at McMaster University. I think in situations where there is a lot of... um, Demands within the home environment, such as with, for example, small dependents or elderly parents, then the workplace actually becomes a place of respite. So work does, in fact, become less stressful than the home. Why do you think people assume that uh, work is more stressful than home? Do you think when, when you have the case where people who have elderly parents or small children, do you think they know that their work is actually giving them some downtime? In my experience um, and in the research that I've done, yes, they're very cognizant of the fact that their work environment, their paid work environment, their employment is their rest time because it's an opportunity for them to actually sit down for one if it's an office job, collect their thoughts. They actually get a coffee break. They get a lunch hour. They have social support often within the workplace, and they often feel a, um, a degree of respect Um, whereas that may not, in fact, be happening in the home environment when caring for young children or caring for elderly dependents or even spousal dependents. Um, And it's a place where most most of us actually look forward to going. (laughs) Is there anything that can be done with this information to make the home part less stressful? There is a, a growing interest in Canada and worldwide to have workplaces basically accommodate the needs of caregivers and uh, parents and others who have um, multiple responsibilities outside of their paid employment. One example of this is um, in the UK, just at the end of June, there was a legislation passed that basically requires all employers to, to accommodate flexible hours in order to make workplaces more family-friendly. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. Individual employees have to apply, and then employers are required to consider requests subjectively and in a reasonable manner, and then make a decision within three months of the request. I've seen numbers, and the the value of unpaid caregiving in Canada is huge. Informal family caregiving is the backbone of our health care system. As I'm sure you know, the the health care system is um, less and less able to accommodate the needs of our aging population and consequently more and more of that responsibility is put on the backs of family members. 
And um, we know that the majority of these family members are, uh, are female. In 2012, it was estimated to be two-thirds of all informal caregivers being women. I'm guessing that that's changing. There are more and more men stepping up to the plate. The thing that is um, changing less rapidly is the accommodations within the workplace. Do you think that uh, doing something similar to what was done in Britain would take care of the problem? Currently in Canada, we have the Compassionate Care Benefit here in Canada, um, which is a federally provided EI benefit. Um, Very few Canadians know about it, and um, consequently it's very rarely taken up. What our research has shown is that it's generally very large employers who uh, have these accommodations. It's also employers who have uh, human resource departments and human resource resources. And it's also um, workplaces that have women in high-ranking positions, whether it be in high-ranking administration or potentially even leadership roles in the management area. Um, and that's because they basically understand the, uh, um, the tensions that exist. And they don't necessarily need to be paid leaves. They can be a compressed work week, or they can be uh, flex time, job sharing. There's all sorts of innovative, um, low-cost solutions to allowing uh, family caregivers to better manage the tensions between family caregiving responsibilities and paid work responsibilities. Okay. Allison Williams, thanks so much. My pleasure. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Canadians were captivated by Eugenie Bouchard, Milos Raonic, and Vashik Pospisil at Wimbledon. How did the Canadian system nurture so much talent? In just a moment, I'll be joined by the president and CEO of Tennis Canada, Kelly Mermetz. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It was a heady, high-impact showing that put Canada in the spotlight at this year's Wimbledon. Beyond the prominence of our rising stars, Eugenie Bouchard, Milos Raonic and Vashik Pospisil, Canada is emerging as a tennis powerhouse. And the question is, how has Canadian tennis managed to compete against bigger countries with more resources? Tennis Canada's CEO, Kelly Mermetz, dropped by our studios to give us her take. So this is your first season as the CEO of Tennis Canada, and suddenly Canada is a huge tennis nation. So first of all, your reaction to the incredible results at Wimbledon. You know what? Uh, Wimbledon was outstanding and truly was historic for Canada and awesome for me personally. So uh, bravo to Milos Raonic, um, you know, uh, lost to Roger Federer, but it's Roger Federer, <laughs> and he played a phenomenal tournament. Jeannie, obviously, did unbelievably well and, again, made history. And then Daniel uh, Nestor is the usual Daniel Nestor. And Vashik Pospisil won. Out of nowhere. Yes. So it's wonderful. Suddenly, all the, you know, the star commentators like John McEnroe, suddenly they're all talking about Canada. Canada is on the world stage. And so um, I would say that was probably one of the highlights for me in London, that um, everyone I spoke with, everywhere we went, uh, were unbelievably respectful of Canada and the program that we have in place here. And certainly oftentimes I did media with U.S. Uh, outlets because they're saying, aren't we a bit larger than you? And don't we have a few more resources than little tiny Canada? And how is it that you are producing these 
really very talented, successful tennis players. And um, we don't really have anyone in the top 50 with the exception of, you know, uh, Serena and John Eisner. To the world, it looks like this happened overnight, but it really didn't happen overnight. And uh, a lot of kudos has to go to your predecessor, Michael Downey, as well. No question. So Michael Downey left me very, very big shoes to fill, but a really wonderful uh, role to to fulfill. And um, uh, this was in the making for the last eight years. So it was under Michael Downey's leadership. Tennis Canada said, we want to be the best in the world. It's not good enough just to be better than last year. We want to be the best in the world. And so we went out and hired arguably the best coaches in the world, uh, Louis Borfiga from France. He hired a team of uh, the best coaches from around the world. And then we created uh, tennis centers in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Uh, worked with the academies right across the country, all provinces and territories. I took the highest potential kids, put them into those uh, regional tennis centers, and then filtered those top highest, highest potential kids into the Montreal National Training Center. And uh, Vashik, Milos, and Jeannie are all products of that system. I believe that this is the beginning of uh, Canada being a tennis nation. In terms of fans, what has to be done? Because uh, tennis is becoming a lot more popular, but still when I go out to tournaments, there are empty seats. Well, so Rogers Cup this year in Toronto and Coop Rogers in Montreal, my first tournament as the CEO of Tennis Canada. And so I'd like those to be the best tournaments. And so we are working very hard to ride the shirt tails of Wimbledon success. Uh, be sure that now that the profile of tennis is starting to be raised and the, the profile of our, our stars are starting to be raised, uh, that we use that to drive uh, tennis fans, certainly for our two tournaments that are, are coming up in August, August 1st to 10th, um, and then continuing forward. So I actually believe that this is this wave is going to create new fans, but also new players. And that is part of my mandate as a CEO of Tennis Canada is to have more rackets, more hands, more often. And so I think it's also going to drive a uh, new generation of Canadians saying, gosh, if GD can do it, if Milos can do it, maybe I can too. Talking about Jeannie and Milos, uh, a bit of controversy coming out of this. She's been called Canada's sweetheart, and people start saying, well, the the way that she is treated and perceived is, is a bit sexist uh, because she's, you know, the William Shatner called her the cutest thing on the planet or something like that. Do you see a divide between the way a female tennis star is perceived and treated and a, a male star? You know, I think that um, there will be issues uh, f- from a feminist perspective probably for all time. And uh, depending on our sensitivities, how we how we respond to some comments, I would just say from Eugenie's perspective, um, I don't think she thinks of herself as anything less than the toughest, most most determined competitor on a tennis court anywhere in the world. And so uh, there's nothing about her that feels like it's a, a cute little thing. Uh, she is a lovely, authentic Canadian. And so she's certainly very marketable, but it's not because uh, she's demure. It's uh, it's because she's a fierce competitor and and gets results. Well, it's it's also because she's she's a very attractive young woman. She's got the whole package, as they say. It, because of that, is her earning potential greater than that of Milos? Uh, I don't know one relative to the other, uh, but certainly her earning potential is through the roof. Are you going to be doing anything to enhance the star power of our players? Sure. I mean, I think uh, working with the agents, uh, both 
Milos and Jeannie have a full, oh, very yeah. well-rounded team of folks around them, uh, more so than Vashik or Daniel. And um, my job is to work with their teams uh, to help build the equity in their brand. I, I believe strongly that as Milos's brand, you know, increases and Jeannie's brand increases, so too does that of Tennis Canada, Tennis in Canada, and we, we build the profile of the sport. Kelly Mermitz, thanks so much. It'll be my pleasure. Canada's two big tennis tournaments will run simultaneously in Toronto and Montreal between August 1st and 10th. This year, the women will be competing in the Coupe Rogers, and the men will be here in Toronto. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. One of the members of Fleetwood Mac is celebrating a birthday this weekend. Coming up, we'll tell you who, and we'll hear a track from the landmark album Rumors. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, the legendary Ellen Burstyn stars in a new staging of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. The Oscar, Emmy, and Tony winner says when The Cherry Orchard was first performed in Moscow, the director called it a great tragedy, while Chekhov insisted it was a comedy. She says it's both. The Cherry Orchard is at the actor's studio until July 21st. To London, England, where Virginia Woolf's life is the focus of an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. It's a visual guide from her birth in 1882 into an upper-class literary family through her Bloomsbury years and friendships to the bouts of mental illness that would lead to her suicide in 1941. And in Germany, the comedy show How to Become a Berliner in One Hour is all in English as it pokes fun at Berliners. It's at the Sternberg Theatre. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. This weekend, Christine McVie, the keyboard player and one of the singers from Fleetwood Mac, is celebrating her 71st birthday. McVie joined Fleetwood Mac in the early 70s when she married bass player John McVie. She became one of the group's primary songwriters, responsible for some of their biggest hits, including Don't Stop, Little Lies, Everywhere, Over My Head, Say You Love Me, and You Make Loving Fun. She retired from the band in 1998, the same year they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In September 2013, at London's O2 Arena, she joined the rest of the band on stage for the first time in 15 years to play her hit, Don't Stop. And in January of this year, it was announced that Christine McVie had officially rejoined the group and would be part of their big reunion tour, kicking off this September. Right now, we'll hear one of the many hit songs she sang and wrote with the group. Here is You Make Loving Fun.
That was Fleetwood Mac with You Make Loving Fun. Singer-songwriter Christine McVie celebrated her 71st birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next weekend to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snyder. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.